0: Welcome, everybody, um, especially to David. (laughs) Uh, This is the 22nd uh, Lionel Robbins Memorial Lectures, and we're really delighted uh, to have David to give them. David is, as you know, one of the leading uh, American economists under 40. He's been a full professor at Harvard uh, since he was 30. He did his PhD there, but before that, he had the great good sense to do his MSc at the London School of Economics. Uh, That, of course, is not why we've invited him. We've invited him because he is one of the the brave spirits um, who have gone into the field that calls itself behavioral economics, uh, which is trying to explain economic behavior as it actually is, um, rather than as we might like it to be. Um, In one sense, it's uh, the combination of psychology and economics. But of course, you know what economists are, so they won't call it that. (laughs) (laughs) we have adopted it Uh, behavioural economics Uh, David is one of the the leading expositors of it and of course it is of direct policy relevance, for example uh, the recent pension legislation we've had in Britain has been directly influenced by David's work um, showing the importance of whether you have opting in or opting out Uh, as you know we've uh, chosen to have in our legislation uh, that you have to opt out of uh, your individual uh, savings account uh, if you don't want to do it, rather opt into it if you do. Uh, that is because it makes a huge difference which way the law is constituted, although in first year economics you're told it doesn't make any difference. Um, David is also an, an, uh, an unusual person uh, in, in, uh, <laughs> in, in other ways. I, I um, I, uh, I emailed Olivier Blanchard to uh, see if he wanted to tell me anything
1: about David. <laughs> <laughs> He said... My advisor, my <laughs> doctoral advisor. <laughs> he
0: said, I am told you need an anecdote about David. Unfortunately, I cannot come up with anything because David always acted perfectly whenever I've seen him. <laughs> so there you are, David. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, welcome back. David is going to talk uh, for... Um, about, you tell me. 50 minutes up to an hour, and then we'll have questions. Uh, and the subject of his first lecture, this is the first of three, of course, tomorrow and the day after. Uh, today, it's intertemporal choice. Welcome, David. Thank you. <laughs>
1: okay. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here um, for so many different reasons. First, I was a student at LSE from 88 to 1990 and uh, was here before so many wonderful things changed this campus and had a fabulous time during those two years and sat in that audience and listened to Larry Summers give his Lionel Robbins lecture. And it's also a great privilege uh, to give this particular lecture. Um, I've been learning so much about uh, Lionel Robbins' contributions, things I hadn't known already, and realizing how much of my understanding of modern economics is due uh, to, to his work. So I want to talk today um, about, well, I want to talk broadly about the psychology of saving and investment, um, but let me tell you where I'm going to go for the next three lectures. I want to begin today by talking about intertemporal choice, which is my particular passion. I then want to talk a little more broadly about how normal people make very bad investment decisions uh, and how policies using defaults can help them make better decisions. And we'll talk more generally about the nature of investment choices and the policies that influence those choices in ways that seem contradictory, if you at least believe the classical economic model. And then finally, I want to talk about how these economic agents behave when we embed them in markets. How does competition affect the behavior uh, of economic agents? Does it make them more rational? Does it make them less rational? So that's the agenda for the next three days. Um, Let me begin with a conceptual outline of what I want to talk about. So that was the kind of literal outline. Here's a conceptual outline. People, uh, in my view, are not internally consistent. Um, They have all sorts of internal tensions that I think are at the heart of a lot of important human behavior. Uh, Those internal conflicts can be measured, and those internal conflicts can be modeled. And I'll talk a little bit about both of those things as we go through these lectures. Conflicts and confusion lead people to make bad choices and to occasionally behave very passively. And that passive behavior is at the heart of why so many of the environment or situational factors that we see in our economy make a big difference, even though economic theory says that those situational factors, like defaults, shouldn't matter. So we'll be studying economic actors who are confused, who are internally conflicted, who procrastinate, who are passive. And finally, competitive markets uh, will not solve the problem. So sadly, though um, we were all taught, at least I was taught uh, originally, that competition would kind of beat all of these inefficiencies out of the economy, I'm going to argue that there are a lot of mistakes that are quite robust to the competitive pressure of the marketplace. So I want to begin today with intertemporal choice, and I want to begin by talking about some motivating experiments, thought experiments and real experiments. I'll then discuss theory, field evidence, and then neuroscience neuroscience evidence that I think provides an underlying foundation for why we feel at times so conflicted and why so much of our behavior is self-defeating. So let me begin with a thought experiment. Now, you have to like massages to appreciate this thought experiment. I'm actually not a big massage guy, but if you're a massage person, you can play along. Um, And there will be no massages given in the course of this lecture. So when you face choices like this, A 15-minute massage now or a 20-minute massage in an hour? How do you think about those choices? By and large, do you go one way or the other way? Granted, it's going to depend upon the situation, but in your life, are you generally the 15-minute massage person or I'll wait an hour and get the 20-minute massage? So let's have hands, keep you awake. Who's going to go for the 15-minute massage in a typical situation like that? Hands high, okay? What about the 20-minute massagers? So I'm gonna say say even split, is that fair? Um, So I think that is a very representative answer to this question, I give this example very often and I typically get even splits. What about this choice? 50 minute massage in a week or a 20 minute massage in a week and an hour? Does anyone here think that they wanna choose today the 20 minute massage in a week and an hour for any other reason other than they happen to have a commitment? Um, in the future uh, that will prevent them from taking the 15-minute massage. Is there anyone here who really wants to defend the choice of the 20-minute, the choice of the 15-minute massage um, in this situation? Can I see your hands? Okay, great. So I'll talk to you guys later. (laughs) So I think that's the point, that most people facing these two choices feel very differently about A and B. It's tough. But about C and D, it's generally for most of us, except those two people there who are sitting next to each other, very, very, very suspicious. Um, it's very easy. Now, that's a thought experiment. Here's a real experiment. This is done by two psychologists, Reed and Van Leeuwen. They asked their subjects, Dutch workers, to make a choice about a snack to be delivered to them um, one week from today. So you're choosing today and you're asking for what, you're deciding what snack you want to receive a week from now. And those subjects, by and large, said, if you're going to bring me a snack in a week, I would like something healthful. Please bring me the fruit. Now, here's another condition done with the same population of subjects. What snack would you like right now? Not a week hence, but today, at this moment. And you might guess, given the theme that I'm on, that the subjects, by and large, did not choose fruit, in this case, but instead chose the chocolate. They chose the less healthful snack. So choosing for the future, bring me fruit. Choosing for right now, bring me fat and sugar. <laughs> Here's another experiment. Read again with this time Lowenstein and Raman They asked undergraduate subjects to choose among 24 movie videos. And without insulting any of your movie preferences, let me just state objectively that these authors categorized those movies into two groups. For example, there were lowbrow movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral Uh, In London, I guess, it's particularly relevant. Um, And there were highbrow movies uh, like Schindler's List. These designations were not revealed to the subjects. And and the experimenters wanted to know what would the subjects pick if the subjects were given the opportunity to watch these movies at different points in time. So when subjects picked a movie to watch tonight, by and large, most subjects chose a lowbrow movie. Two out of three subjects chose a lowbrow movie. When subjects chose a movie to watch... Next Monday night, choosing today for a week in the future, now 37% chose lowbrow. And when subjects chose a movie to watch in two weeks' time, now only 29% chose lowbrow. Again, we're seeing this phenomenon. Choosing in the moment, I want something pleasurable. Choosing for the future, I want something that's good for me. Or I want to do the more kind of investment-prone, economically rational choice. Now here's another experiment that my collaborators and I have done. We'll hear more about this later in today's talk. Uh, We asked our subjects who were uh, water deprived, who were all very, very thirsty. In fact, slightly tortured them. Uh, What would they like? Some juice right now or more juice in five minutes. And 60% of our subjects who were very thirsty said they, they would take some juice right now. Now we took the same population of water-deprived subjects and asked them a different question. What about some juice in 20 minutes, or again, more juice, the same amount more, and you'll hear more details later, in 25 minutes? The same structure we saw earlier. And now only 30% of the subjects chose the earlier of the two rewards. So we're seeing a very robust tendency here. When people are thinking about short-run choices, They tend to be very, very patient. In the immediate present, in this example, they had a 50% discount rate. They were discounting juice rewards that were coming to them in five minutes by 50%. But they were discounting juice rewards in the future. In this case, only 20 minutes away. The discount rate between minute 20 and minute 25 was 0%. Very high discount rates in the immediate present, 50% devaluation between zero and five minutes, and almost no discounting in the future between minute 20 and minute 25. Now, these are not new ideas. Um, believe it or not, Ramsey uh, in his papers had footnotes that anticipated all of these observations. And Strots and Hernstein, Strots an economist and hernstein a psychologist, wrote papers about this in the 1950s and 1960s. So I'm continuing in that tradition. Now let me bring this back to economic theory. And I'm gonna to try to give these lectures with as little mathematics as possible because we have a very, I think, heterogeneous group here. But occasionally I'll lapse into alphas and, and betas and deltas. So here's one of those moments. If you're an economist, this is a familiar formalization. Exponential discounting. How do you discount the future? Well, you put weight one on the present, weight delta on the next period, weight delta squared on the next period, etc., out to infinity. The problem with that kind of formulation here written out with a separable utility function. Maybe I'll just make sure the formalism is familiar. Here's total utility, subscripted with the current period t, and here are utility flows in every future period. This this formalization does not generate any of the patterns that we saw during the past five or six slides. It doesn't generate any of that special taste for immediacy, any of that tendency to discount a lot in the short run and discount very little in the long run. In particular, The exponential discount function graphed here, weeks versus value, is characterized by a constant rate of decline. Wherever you're thinking about discounting, whether you're thinking about the immediate present or 11 weeks away or 25 weeks away, wherever you're thinking about discounting, the exponential discount function is characterized by the same rate of decline at any horizon, a constant rate of decline. By contrast, the experimental evidence and our intuitions, I think, support a very different formalization. A discount function that declines very rapidly in the near term. Between now and let's say a week from now, that's a very large decrease in valuation if I'm going to delay a reward psychologically that amount of time. But very little discounting in the distant future. If I have to wait for my juice even a few minutes, it's devalued substantially. But if I have to wait for my juice between two dates in the distant future, the devaluation is very minimal. So this is what the experimental evidence wants. This is what our intuition wants. Now, there's another argument against the exponential discount function that we put up a second ago, which is if you believe that we psychologically discount things even a little bit between today and tomorrow, and you exponentiate that daily discount rate out to months and years and decades, A 1% daily discount rate exponentiated out for 5 or 10 years generates a devaluation pattern that is so extreme it's as if we don't care about the future at all. So let's see an example of that. What's 100 utils worth in T years if I'm discounting at only 1% per day? Well, that's 100 times e to the minus 0.01 times 365 days per year times T years. And you can see in a second that that kind of exponential discounting, exponentiating out into the distant future, is going to produce nonsensical results. What is 100 utils worth in a year today? Only 2.6 utils. What's 100 utils in two years worth today? Only 0.07 utils. What's 100 utils worth in three years today? Only 0.00 utils. And obviously, there's some decimal place where it actually, again, matters. In essence, if you think that you psychologically devalue tomorrow by 1% and you iterate that devaluation out months and years, it's as if you don't care about the future. But we know we all care about the future, and that's where the tension lies. We do seem to psychologically discount tomorrow by more than 1%, but we don't seem to discount events that are 15 or 50 years away by as much as would be implied by the exponentiation of that one-day discount rate. So what should we do? Well, here's the framework that I'm pushing. Uh, It was first introduced by Phelps and Pollock in the 1960s. The idea here is that, oops, don't step on that, uh, is that we're going to separately model short-run discounting and long-run discounting. So short-run discounting here is going to be captured by this parameter beta, and long-run discounting is going to be captured by this relatively familiar parameter delta the exponential discount function. So how does this look? Well, here's a separable utility representation. Here's exponential discounting, delta, delta squared, delta cubed, going off into infinity. But there's this additional effect, beta, that downweights the future relative to the present. And that's gonna be at the core of what I'm gonna talk about for today's lecture. Now, to get some intuition about this framework, let's take a extreme case. Let's imagine that beta here is exactly a half just to keep our numbers round and delta is exactly one to get rid of all of that long run discounting. So if delta is one, this is just one, one, one. Then we end up with this formulation here. Total utility equals a current utility flow and then half weighting on all future utils. It's as if I care about today and everything that happens in my future only gets halfway relative to the things that happen right now. Now that's extreme, but let's run with that just to build intuition about this framework. What that implies is that as you sit here on Monday, you care about what happens on Monday. And you substantially downweight what happens on Tuesday. But you reason psychologically that what happens on Tuesday and Wednesday are kind of the same for you. What you really distinguish is Monday. That's what's different, because Monday is your present. Now, the problem, of course, is that when you get to Tuesday, now Tuesday will be your present. And Tuesday will now be distinguished from Wednesday, producing what we economists call dynamic inconsistency. Now, it may not be immediately obvious from this formalization, but let's see an example, uh, due to Akroloff and then developed by O'Donohue and Rabin, that pushes this example in a way that I think may be um, intuitively plausible. Um, So again, let's assume that beta is equal to 1 half and delta is equal to 1. And let's consider exercise. Um, So we Americans are obsessed with exercise. Not that we exercise. (laughs) So in this formulation, what would the American do? Well, would they exercise today? Well, no, because the cost of six is offset by a delayed benefit of eight. But the discounting of a half makes it psychologically Uh, unappealing to make this transaction because the current costs are fully weighted and the future benefits are only half-weighted. So the agent reasons, look, I don't want to exercise today because the net discounted benefit is negative two. But what does this agent simultaneously reason as she thinks about exercising, as she thinks about, or I think about joining a gym? She decides, of course, I'll exercise tomorrow. Now, why is she excited to exercise tomorrow? It's because the now discounting, the discounting of a half hits the six and hits the eight. So when I think about the future, I discount both costs and benefits. And hence, I'm very happy to plan to exercise tomorrow. Now, you can kind of see where this is going. Is this agent ever going to exercise? No, right. Now, what she will do is commit herself to exercise. So what she would perhaps do is find a way not to exercise today, but to lock herself in to exercising in the future. So she'll, if she's rational, if she foresees all of these effects, will find ways to commit her future selves to exercise because she knows that her future selves won't do it on their own. From the current perspective, exercise is not desirable. Looking into the future, however, exercise is desirable. Now, this is more than just a um, theoretical surmise. Uh, Delevingne and Maumandie have actually gone to gyms in the Boston area and looked to see whether people exercise uh, when they have already joined a gym and paid a lot of money for the privilege of going to that gym. What they find is that the average gym member pays $75 per month to be a member of the gym. The average number of visits is four visits per month. So the average cost per visit is $19, and that doesn't necessarily contradict economic logic. Maybe these people have a lot of money to burn. Maybe $19 per visit is an appropriate price for them to pay. But what they also found is that at these gyms, there was another way to go to the gym. You did not need to be a member. You could instead pay on a cost per visit basis. You could instead simply say, I'm not going to be a member, but I'll pay $10 every time I visit the gym. Now it becomes immediately transparent that there's something very fishy about people who find themselves in this situation. They should be paying on a cost-per-visit basis, but they're instead joining this gym and going so rarely that they're basically creating an arbitrage opportunity with themselves that they're not exploiting. (laughs) Now, there are two ways to understand this behavior. On the one hand, they might understand this problem and still join the gym as a way of kind of forcing themselves to go. That would be a sophisticated agent with a self-control problem pushing themselves to, to go to the gym, knowing that they're not going optimally, but at least they're going four times a month. On the other hand, they might be naive about these dynamics, expecting that they're going to exercise, and in fact, failing to do so month in and month out. Now, my own experience is somewhat relevant here. Uh, I paid $1,000 to join a gym, a one-year membership, and having advised this thesis uh, and knowing these results, I went six times over the next 12 (laughs) months. So naivete, I think, has some bearing here. Now, it's not just gyms, and we're going to see these kinds of behaviors. In the course of the next two days, we're going to see these behaviors cropping up in many, many different settings. Here's just an example to whet your appetite. I say unreliable, I'm telling you about survey results. They're somewhat unreliable because talk is cheap and we economists tend to be very skeptical of people who um, go out and survey the public and then feel as though they've revealed the public's true preferences. But having made that acknowledgement, let me tell you what happens when we engage in these kinds of somewhat unreliable surveys. Um, For every 100 people that are surveyed in the US, on average about two thirds say that they're saving too little. Um, they're given typically balanced opportunities to say they're saving too much or saving too little. Out of every 68 who say they're saving too little, 24 of 68 in our survey here told us that they were planning to fix the problem in the next two months by raising their savings rate. But we actually have their administrative records. We know exactly, the we being James Choi, Bridget Majore, and Andrew Metric, uh, we know exactly what the subjects or the respondents here did over the next two, four, six months. How many of those 24 who said they were going to fix the problem in the next two months do you think actually did go into their savings plan and raise their savings rate or join the savings plan? Any guesses? Okay, good. Yeah, now you're with me. So three of 24 on average actually do so. So by and large, Americans know they're saving too little or at least believe they're saving too little, or at least report they're saving too little. They report they want to fix the problem, uh, and the follow through is abysmal, a pattern we're going to see again. Now, if you're a kind of more serious economist and you want to write down a structural model of all of these things, and I hope you do, um, you can do that too. Let me tell you about the kind of work that's taking that approach to measuring these preferences. So what we've done, and this is now work with Andrea Repetto and Jeremy Tabachman, we studied what we consider to be the most important facts about U.S. consumers. What are those facts? Well, they're doing a lot of voluntary wealth accumulation for retirement. In the decade before retirement, their wealth-to-income ratio is about 4 to 1. But even as they're doing all all of this wealth accumulation, voluntary wealth accumulation, so I'm not counting here their Social Security pension value, which is wealth that is being forced on them, I'm counting here only wealth that they voluntarily accumulate. Even as they voluntarily accumulate all of this wealth, they're doing a lot of credit card borrowing. In any given month in the US, two out of three households do not pay their credit card bill in full when they get the bill. In other words, they're borrowing. And they're borrowing at high interest rates. The average credit card interest rate is 14% on a debt-weighted basis, on a dollar-weighted basis. Credit card debt averages about 13% of annual income in the U.S. In addition to that fact, U.S. households are also holding so little liquidity that when their income predictably goes up or predictably goes down, their consumption goes up and goes down. Now, not one for one. There's a little bit of smoothing. There's a lot of smoothing. But on average, their marginal propensity to consume out of predictable movements in income is about 23 cents on the dollar. And there are some who think it's 50 cents, some who think it's 15 cents, but that's a consensus estimate, about 23 cents on the dollar. Now, we wrote down a rich life cycle model of U.S. households. We gave them stochastic income, life cycle variation in labor supply, social security, life cycle variation in dependence, bequests, illiquid assets, liquid assets, credit card debt. So it's a numerical model. And we're gonna solve this model with backwards induction to solve for the behavior of agents in the economy, individual households. And we're going to estimate these key parameters, beta, the short-run discount factor, and delta, the long-run discount factor. When we estimate these parameters by asking what value of these parameters matches the existing data on US household behavior, the model wants a beta value of 0.7 and a delta value of 0.96. Now, and the standard errors here are pretty small, 0.11 and 0.01. Why does this model want a beta value that's so low, relative to the kind of classical benchmark of beta equals 1? That's the exponential discounting model. The classical exponential discounting model has a beta value of 1. Why does the model want a beta value that's so far below 1 and a delta value that's so close to 1? Well, there are two things that US households are doing. On the one hand, they're saving a lot. They're putting money into all of these illiquid vehicles like savings plans at their workplace, voluntary savings plans, like home equity. They're doing a lot of voluntary wealth accumulation into these illiquid vehicles. So on the one hand, to get people to voluntarily accumulate wealth for decade or 50-year horizons, you better have a low long-run discount rate. On the other hand, they're borrowing very, very actively on their credit cards and paying a 14% interest rate so they can have liquidity today that they're going to pay back next month. To get them to do that, you're going to need relatively low beta values, a relatively high short-run discount rate, which is equivalent to a low short-run discount factor. So that's what the model is, is looking for, and that's what the model is delivering. Here are the empirical moments, the fraction of households borrowing on their credit cards each month and paying interest, the ratio of credit card debt to income, the marginal propensity to consume out of predictable movements in income, and a concave transformation of the wealth to income ratio. And here are the simulated numbers coming from the model using these parameter estimates. And you can see we're doing a pretty good job with this short run, with this beta delta formulation in matching the observed behavior of American households. Now, I've given you a quick taste of the different kinds of evidence that economists are looking at as they and psychologists as well I guess there are perhaps a few uh, at LSE. Um, I wish I had spoken to them more when I was here. I um, didn't didn't meet any of them during my two years. Um, A bit of the evidence that social scientists are looking at in thinking about how these non-exponential discount functions might be measured or might be relevant for various types of behavior. What I want to do now is do something kind of much more radical and take kind of the top off the brain and look inside the brain and begin to ask, can we go beyond observing behavior and actually gain some insight about these preferences using neuroscience? So what is the mechanism that drives people to have this really short run, really high short run discount rate and a really low long run discount rate? Is there a biological explanation? So here's an experiment which um, We'll start with just to kind of get you thinking about what's going on here. It won't convince you of anything. It's highly bizarre. Uh, But I think it's a useful starting point for this conversation. So in this experiment, subjects are divided into two groups. So some of them, Francesco, would you volunteer uh, for for one of these groups? So some of them are given a seven-digit number to remember. Uh, Eight, seven, six, one, eight, three, seven. And some of them are given a two-digit number to remember. Richard, would you volunteer for this? Uh, (laughs) I'm going easy on you. (laughs) So four-seven. And having remembered these numbers, and they're really encouraged to keep them in mind because it's very important for the experiment, um, they then go to another room where they're given a choice. Would you like chocolate cake or fruit salad? And the subjects in Francesco's condition by and large say, I won't let you answer the question for yourself, Uh, They, by and large, say that they want chocolate cake. So, in fact, the subjects who are under high cognitive load, and seven digits is, as you know, a very significant cognitive burden, Uh, by and large, 63% of those subjects say they would like chocolate cake and not fruit salad, thank you very much. By contrast, the subjects in Richard's condition, again, there's random assignment here, so it's the same population of subjects, by and large, say they don't want chocolate cake. Only 41% of those subjects go for the chocolate cake. Now, what do neuroscientists think is going on in an experiment like this? They think the subjects in Francesco's condition are under great cognitive load. They're using their working memory, which is, let's say, uh, part of an analytic capacity that we humans have, which leaves them only with unused resources, cognitive resources, in their emotional brain. I'm going to call that emotional brain the the mesolimbic dopamine system. And that emotional brain is not where you do working memory. That emotional brain is another brain region where your gut instincts live, where your intuitive emotional responses to the world reside. It's a simplification, but bear with me because economists, uh, you know, we, we, we like to oversimplify the world and um, we allow ourselves that luxury. So the interpretation of the experiment is that Francesco was so busy using his working memory, his analytic brain up here, to remember the seven-digit number that all he could call on when faced with the chocolate cake fruit salad choice was his emotional brain down here. And his emotional brain knows the answer to the question, chocolate cake or fruit salad. By contrast, Richard, remembering two digits, wasn't taxing very greatly his analytic brain. And as a consequence, his analytic brain was totally prepared to answer the question, chocolate cake or fruit salad? And it it understands that chocolate cake, however good it is right now, is a long run costly choice. It has dynamic negative consequences. And as a consequence, uh, his analytic brain was free to reason that chocolate cake was, in fact, a bad choice. that's a lot of storytelling and a lot of hand waving. So, what we're doing these days is trying to take that story back to models and actually ask whether those kinds of stories have some, can, can be supported with some direct evidence by looking at the human brain while it's making decisions. Before I show you that neuroimaging evidence, let me first tell you about, um, the reason that I think these kinds of analyses are closely linked to the model that we've been talking about so far. So, let's hypothesize that we all have two brains. Think about, you know, the devil on one shoulder, a very impatient, emotional, mesolimbic dopamine system that only values the present, or places disproportionate value on the present. And on the other shoulder, an analytic brain, more recently evolved, more associated with what we think of as human rational cognition. That analytic brain much more patient, much more capable of simulation, much more forward-looking, much more interested and concerned with events that will unfold in the distant future. So, we have a patient frontoparietal system and an impatient, deeper mesolimbic dopamine system. And these two systems speak to us throughout our lives, direct us, struggle for control of our choices. The mesolimbic dopamine system is ancient. We share it with all mammals. The analytic cortical system, frontal parietal cortical system, is much more recently evolved and much more like what we think of as classical economic reason. Now, let's take the preferences that we wrote down before, these so-called quasi-hyperbolic preferences, and let's transform them in ways that are legitimate to an economist. Let's multiply both the right and left-hand sides by a positive constant. So I'm gonna multiply both sides by one over beta. So this term vanishes, or this beta term vanishes, and then I have a one over beta here. And then let's take this first term here, one over beta times u sub t, and let's decompose it into two pieces. A one over beta minus one term, and a one, which I'll put right here, and call delta to the naught power. So now I have decomposed this person's preferences into two bits into an exponential discounting bit right here in blue, which I'm going to associate with your rational brain, and a very impatient mesolimbic bit here in red, which I'll associate with that dopamine system. One system in blue cares about the future. Let delta go close to one. That system basically says, events in the future matter a lot to me. The other system in red, in this extreme example, cares only about right now, only values the immediate present. Now, there are many different discount function representations that I want to talk about in the next 10 minutes. And I won't have time to talk about them all, I'm realizing. Um, So there's a traditional hyperbolic discount function, 1 over 1 plus capital. There's a quasi-hyperbolic discount function that we've talked about already with the betas and the deltas. And here's the decomposition where I break it into a limbic bit and a cortical bit. But I could also generalize this framework. And rather than having a limbic bit that's perfectly impatient, it only waits current utility flows, I can decompose that into a limbic bit that has a discount function d sub beta that decays very sharply, and a cortical bit that has a discount function d sub delta that decays very, very slowly. So now I have two discount functions inside the human brain, a very impatient mesolimbic dopamine system and a very patient cortical system. And these two systems are constantly telling you what to do and very frequently disagreeing according to our hypotheses. Now, I can write that again by saying this system is an exponential system and this system is an exponential system. Let them both be exponential discount functions. But one declines very steeply and one declines very shallowly. One is very impatient and one is very patient. And they add up to be you. Let's see that adding up. Here's your total discount function, a weighted sum of a sharply declining beta exponential system and a less sharply declining delta exponential system. I take those two valuation systems, I add them together, and I get this picture here. So your emotional system is rapidly declining in its concern for delayed events, whereas your cortical brain, your rational brain, the folded tissue on the top of your head that makes you human, is much less likely to show declining activation as you think and value delayed rewards. So when you think about the near-term present, your valuation is declining very rapidly because the mesolimbic system is still in play. When you think about the distant future, all that's really left is the blue system. And as a consequence, you're relatively patient as you think about events weeks and years away. So, here is the micro foundation for the story that, for the data we've been talking about so far. A world in which you're very impatient in the short run, rapidly declining valuation, and a world in which you're very patient in the long run because you're primarily only left with a waiting that's coming from the blue patient cortical system. Now, can I support that with some data? It's a kind of nice story, but the hand waving is really getting out of control. So... Here's some neuroimaging evidence, which I think gives us something to hang our hat on. What we want to do here is basically ask, when people make choices about distant trade-offs, is it the case that their rational frontal parietal system shows activation? But when they make choices about short-run trade-offs, now versus, say, two weeks from now, as opposed to two weeks versus four weeks. So here's two versus four weeks into the future. These are long-run trade-offs. Here's zero weeks into the future versus two weeks into the future, short-run trade-offs. What do we think we should observe if we live in the world that I've been describing? Well, up here we should be seeing your rational brain making this decision, primarily your rational brain, your frontal parietal system. And down here we should see both systems in action, because now, immediacy is in the choice set. You could choose an immediate option, which means the limbic brain is on. The mesolimbic dopamine system is on, is active, is concerned, is voting. But as well, the frontal parietal system is there, is, is there too, because your rational brain, of course, cares about all decisions. Now, two weeks from now, four weeks, 50 years from now. So we would expect to see up here, only activation in the frontal parietal cortex And down here, activation in both systems. Well, what do we actually see when we look at data? Um, This is what the subjects are experiencing in these kinds of experiments. We're putting them on their back and rolling them into a $5 million extremely scary noisy magnet. You might wonder whether this is a realistic choice environment. Uh, I do too. But that's what we do. And they have an opportunity to choose between $20.28 today in this example. They're going to do dozens of these. And $23.32 in a month. They indicate their choice on their back with a thumb lever. And as they press the thumb lever, they can choose left or right. In this case, the subject has chosen the left option. 2028 today. Now, we vary these choices. So the subjects in our experiments experience uh, let's see 3 by 2 by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. So that's um, 54 choices in the course of this experiment. I think I got that right. Probably not. Um, And we vary the delay to the early reward. So it's sometimes a delay of 0, sometimes a delay of 2 weeks, sometimes a delay of 1 month. We also vary the delay between the more delayed reward and the early reward. So this is the additional delay if you're going to go for the more delayed option. Sometimes that additional delay is two weeks, sometimes it's one month, as it is here. And we vary the percentage increase in the reward you're gonna get. So it's sometimes a 1% increase, sometimes 3%, 5%, et cetera. Here, it's $3 over 20, so that would be about 15%. So this is an example, in this case, where the subject chose between today versus a month later, that's an additional one month delay, And the percentage increase in reward was 15%. And we give every subject every one of these trials. What do we see? So here are brain images. Let me quickly tell you how to interpret this data. What I'm showing you on the horizontal axis is time. Our magnet, our $5 million magnet, is scanning these people's brains every two seconds. And we have a complete picture of where the brain is using blood at a voxel-by-voxel basis, which is a 4-millimeter cube of tissue or a 3-millimeter cube of tissue, we can observe which little cubes of tissue, these 3-millimeter cubes, are being used every two seconds in the course of our 45-minute experiment. And what we're doing is we're looking to see which parts of the brain are active during which kinds of decisions. What do we notice? Well, when people choose between an immediate reward and a delayed reward, those are the red conditions. When they choose between two delayed rewards where the earliest of the delayed rewards is available in two weeks, those are the green conditions. And when they choose between two delayed rewards where the earliest of the delayed rewards is available in a month, that's the blue condition. What I'm showing you here is the activation pattern during this choice. Here's time on this axis, and here's the activation pattern here. And you can see something very interesting. In these four brain regions, the red line lies clearly above the blue and green lines. So what's going on there? Well, it looks as if, as we hypothesized, these emotional brain regions, these parts of the mesolimbic dopamine system, are relatively active, When subjects make a choice that involves an immediate option, when immediacy is possible. But when subjects make a choice that involves only delayed alternatives, in green and blue, these regions show a little bit of activation, but not much. So these emotional brain regions only respond forcefully, fully, when immediacy is possible, when immediacy is in the choice, in the set of choices available to our subject. Now what about the analytic brain? What about the rational brain? What does that look like? The frontal parietal cortex. Well, the rational brain doesn't show this pattern. The rational brain shows activation profiles that don't distinguish between choice sets that have an immediate option and choice sets in green and blue that do not have an immediate option. So as I told you before, the rational brain seems to recognize that a Snickers bar in a year is as good as a Snickers bar in six months. The rational brain is not going to be confused by moving things away in time. But if I go back a slide, the emotional brain, the mesolimbic dopamine system, does draw a sharp distinction between now in red and later in blue and green. Now, these patterns... Are sufficiently strong that we can actually predict what people will choose if we can observe their brain patterns. So when people choose the larger delayed reward in one of these choice oppor- in one of these choice decisions, their rational frontal system is relatively active, and when they choose um, rel- relatively active relative to the emotional system, and when they choose the smaller immediate reward, their emotional system is relatively active compared to their frontal system. So where are we right now? This evidence supports the story that we're telling, that you in essence have two systems, an impatient emotional system, the mesolimbic dopamine system, which devalues the future very sharply, and a patient frontal parietal system that understands that delayed rewards are almost as good as immediate rewards. Now. There are a lot of questions that this experiment doesn't answer, and there's a second experiment that I don't have time to tell you about because I think I should stop and take questions pretty soon. Um,
0: Well, uh, I think everybody's uh, pretty much engaged
1: here.
0: um, We've got another 10 minutes,
1: can't we? Well, I'm I'm going to insist actually that we stop in seven minutes because I I, I feel that it's unfair to people who might have families and dinners and other things. So I'll I'll give you a quick summary of the second experiment. Stay
0: and listen to the questions. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, true. They have the option. Okay, so... Take, so,
0: take, take,
1: as well, take what you need. Well, okay. I'm, 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 I'm not going to abuse your patients, because um, I've, I've often sat out there and <laughs> needed to go home. So, um, um, so, what I've shown you is that these two brain systems think about the future very differently. The emotional system seems to discount the future sharply. The analytic brain, the frontal parietal cortex, seems to discount the future much, much, much less. Now, we don't really know how all of that works. What are the time courses? What are the functions? Uh, Is it the same when we're working with something like money or something like a primary reward like juice? So the second experiment that I have in this slide deck, which I'll happily send you if you want to see it, um, studies a very different type of reward. The previous experiment studied basically a money-like reward. We studied an Amazon gift certificate. So we gave our subjects a gift certificate that they could either use today, or in two weeks, or in four weeks, or in six weeks, or in eight weeks. That was the first experiment. The second experiment takes our subjects and gives them an opportunity to have a primary reward during the experiment, which is a squirt of juice. To make them motivated, we bring them into the experiment extremely thirsty. So this is this this is work with uh, Sam McClure, Keith Erickson, George Lowenstein, and Jonathan Cohen. The same co-author group from the previous experiment, except the previous experiment didn't have Keith Erickson on the on the um, um, on the masthead. We made our our subjects extremely thirsty. We denied them the right to drink for four hours before the experiment. So here's a subject who tells us how happy he is to be in our experiment. It's only uh, 4 o'clock, and he is scheduled for 6 o'clock. So he's only been denying himself fluid, um, I'm sorry, for one hour. It's a three-hour denial. And of course, to get them even more angry at us and motivated, when they arrive at the experiment, we give them a bag of chips. (laughs) So they're highly motivated. And they're going to make choices about receiving drops of juice during this experiment we're going to squirt the juice directly into their mouth. Let's now have some control over it so they don't <laughs> choke. And we want to see how do they value juice squirts at different points in time over the next 30 minutes. And it's very much like what we saw before. Two squirts, let's say now versus three squirts in 5 minutes. Now, without going through all the results because I don't want to uh, burden you with another 15 minutes. What we find in this experiment is very much like what we found before. What we find in this experiment, we find extreme impatience, and we find that, again, the emotional brain responds to now. So when you can get a squirt in the next few minutes, your emotional brain lights up. But when you can get a squirt in 10 minutes, when you're in this extremely thirsty state, the emotional brain is quiet. So we're seeing the same pattern The emotional brain responds to immediacy, but now immediacy is a matter of minutes as opposed to today. And now the emotional brain is quiet when it's contemplating a juice squirt that's gonna come in 15 minutes. So we're we're replicating the same pattern we saw before, the same two brain brain model, an impatient emotional brain and a patient analytic brain. The time horizon has been radically compressed When we ask how do these two experiments compare, it's remarkable how similar the results are. So what I'm gonna show you now are the inpatient areas up here and the patient areas down here. And I'm gonna show you in yellow brain regions that respond identically in the two experiments, even though the time course has been compressed. And you can see the patient areas are almost exactly the same. The inpatient areas are not exactly the same, but they're neighboring. They're they're in the same vicinity. They're neighboring regions in this primitive mesolimbic dopamine system. So there's a great deal of robustness here and also a great deal of differentiation. We're seeing the same patterns, even though we're looking at a very different kind of intertemporal decision. So when we measure these brain regions, and we try to measure discount functions using the kind of classic discounting frameworks that we economists use, we find that the exponential uh, we find that the exponential discount rate in the inpatient regions is about four percent per minute during this extremely unusual trial with very thirsty uh, salt exposed subjects, whereas the exponential discount rate in the patient regions is about one percent per minute. So again, a differentiation but now a radically for-shortened time horizon. Now, when we write down models of these patterns, we're able to very closely predict the patterns of activation that we see using these discounting paradigms. So here's the impatient brain regions, and you can see here the red dots are the model, the model that I've been describing so far, an exponential discounting model that values delayed rewards at a very high discount rate. And you can see the model in, in red does a very nice job of matching the data, which is the X's. Likewise, in the patient regions, and now you're gonna see less of a, of a slope, in the patient regions, again, the model in red is doing a very nice job of matching the data in the X's. Okay, now, um, let me get to um, a summary. So it looks as though this story is holding up. There's one system associated with midbrain dopamine neurons. That's your patient, it's a, that is your impatient self. That is the I want to sleep late, I want the chocolate cake, uh, I want to watch the game, I want the extra beer system. And the second system is the economic textbook system, the lateral prefrontal cortex and parietal cortex, which basically looks a lot like what we teach you human actors do. In fact, it's not what both systems do, it's what one of our two systems does. And we believe. Um, and now I'm speaking, I hope, for most of the co-authors that I've discussed in the last hour, that these two systems may jointly account for the patterns that we're seeing in the data, patterns of short-run impatience and long-run patience. So what have I shown you today? First, experimental evidence, classic laboratory behavioral data, not neuroimaging data, behavioral data for dynamic inconsistency. Then a theoretical framework that organizes this data, quasi-hyperbolic discounting, Field evidence, and we'll see more of that, that supports this interpretation. Credit card borrowing, wealth accumulation, etc. And then finally, a neuroscientific story that provides the underlying um, mechanisms that may drive these seemingly self-destructive, internally inconsistent behaviors. It's not that surprising that we're internally inconsistent if we have two different preference systems that don't value the future in the same way. So, that's Lecture 1, um, a description of how individuals make intertemporal choices. I want to then translate this into our investment behaviors, and we'll see some very paradoxical, self-defeating investment behaviors uh, Tuesday night. And finally, a discussion of how all of this changes or doesn't change when we embed these psychologically rich actors in competitive markets. Well, I think we have a little time for questions. Okay,
0: great.
1: So
0: it's Okay. 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 So When you make a decision involving um, uh, a, a short-term reward, um, presumably, for example, like if, if you're very thirsty and you want a glass of water, uh, you're offered a glass of water now or in the future, then um, that will you will actually be dis, um, making that decision, bearing in mind your needs now, and the un- there'll be uncertainty as to whether you'll need the water in the future. So, um, I mean, you've... You've introduced these two parts of the brain as though one is entirely rational and one is entirely irrational. But would you say there's perhaps an argument uh, where you could could possibly argue that both parts of the brain are equally rational?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a good point. Uncertainty is a very important confounding factor in these kinds of experiments. And I overstated my case. I shouldn't have said or implied that one was entirely rational and one was entirely irrational. What I really believe is that these are just different preference systems. Um, It's not clear which one is more or less rational if you don't have a prior about what an appropriate discount rate is. So, I take your point that in certain environments behaving as if you have a really high discount rate might be a rational thing to do. When this mesolimbic dopamine system evolved 100 million years ago, horizons were much shorter. There were lots of reasons why you couldn't count on being around in in a week's time. So it might have made sense that 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 system wasn't too focused on the future and was more interested in what was happening right now. That was certainly the priority. But of course, as our environment has changed, it's likely that our brain hasn't changed at the same rate, particularly in the last few hundred years. And as a consequence, these days horizons of 50-70 years are very, very frequent horizons for humans to think about and to um, have to wrestle with in their lives. And so I think what we have is a mesolimbic dopamine system that doesn't adhere to what most of us would consider to be a normative uh, belief that events that occur 50 years from now really do matter and should not be uh, ignored because there's a very high likelihood that we will be around to reap the, um, uh, the balances in our, recu- in our retirement accounts. And it's in that sense that I worry that the mesolimbic <laughs> dopamine system may, if it is impatient and if it is driving our decisions, may occasionally lead us to make poor choices
0: Um, The examples you were taking were looking at different bits of the brain but in a simple world of certainty as in I understand money Amazon ain't going to go bust I know what juice is Now you were talking earlier about pensions where I'm expected as an, uh, an average punter to choose from 700 different private pension funds and this can become immobilizing. Is that something you're going on to talk about in a, in a future lecture?
1: That's right. So, so I, I think that there are, that will be the subject of tomorrow's lecture. Um, and to anticipate, I think there are two things that lead us to be um, fundamentally ineffective in making those choices. The first is the kinds of impatience that I've talked about here. And the second is a um, contributing factor, which is our financial illiteracy. And if you find a decision really, really hard and unpleasant, that's yet one more reason to move it off till tomorrow. These two things work together.
0: Hi. Um, It strikes me there's a strong resemblance between the discounted dynamic that you've elaborated and other evidence about how people feel personally compared to how they feel about their society. Uh, All the polling data that I've ever, ever seen suggests that people feel very optimistic about themselves personally, very pessimistic about society. They also feel they act rationally and that society acts irrationally. So in the United States at the moment, for obvious reasons, there's a lot of polling data on whether people would elect a female president. 90% of people feel that they would, but they feel that only about 50% of people in the rest of society. It's the same with a black president. I wonder if you had any thoughts on that
1: dynamic. I think you're quite right about those stylized facts. I think they're coming from a different mechanism. Uh, I think that and this is an interesting topic that I think is underexplored, someone thinking about a doctoral dissertation should should, uh, be on this, Uh, that that we find it very, very pleasant to review all of these wonderful things about ourselves. So we over-rehearse, you know, that brilliant comment I made yesterday, um, the sentence that I wrote that was almost poetic, uh, the insight that I had in the seminar last week, uh, and we under-rehearse all of the terrible things that we do. Uh, It's just pleasant to think about how how smart and good we are. Uh, And as a consequence, I think we are prone to make the mistake that you've described. I don't think it's coming from this channel. Um, Maybe you have a theory about how it might be connected. But I do think that that what you're describing is very real.
0: How pessimistic are you about the future? Because it seems like we can't really make decisions anymore because it's just being made by two parts of our brain. And also, what should we study now for EC102, which is our elementary microeconomics course?
1: Um, So actually, I'm, I'm actually very excited about the possibilities that are available to us now because once we recognize that the orthodoxy of let's call it um, you know, Milton Friedman, wasn't quite right. Uh, that opens up enormous possibilities for interventions that can be highly effective in helping people improve their lives. And, and this is now an interesting side point in light of the fact that we're here for the Lionel Robbins lectures. Um, Lionel Robbins was very interested in separating positive science from normative science um, and a very important distinction. So now I'm gonna cross that line and say, If you you believe that people have these tendencies to be myopic in many situations or have difficulty making rational decisions and you're asking now, what institution should we build for our society? Well, great, we should build pensions. You know, we should do a lot of things. We should make pensions easy for people to use. We should make them um, simpler to get into and harder to get out of. I mean, there's a million techniques that we'll again talk about on Tuesday for helping people that look like this thrive in the modern world. And so suddenly there's a huge role for economists not just to sit and prove theorems that other economists read, but to design institutions and mechanisms that help people make good choices. Now, of course, as I say all of that, boy, that's dangerous territory because who's to say that my preferences and my policies are the right ones but we need to have a debate and we need to be extremely conservative and Burkean and recognizing the world works in many different complex ways and we're not going to just jump in and fix it overnight. Um, and I think you know a lot of people believe they can fix the world overnight and that's how we get into Iraq. Um, but, but I think it does suggest there are opportunities for us cautiously, carefully, scientifically, with experiments to go in and... Um, and design mechanisms that help imperfect people make better choices.
0: Thank
1: you. Uh, do you know if there are any ways to chemically reduce the activity of this mesolimbic <laughs> system, just like in order to make you more successful in the society? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so just, just, just. It's a great question and I feel very <laughs> guilty because if I were to turn that system off, you would fall apart. So it's not, it's like saying, um, you know, I, I've got um, one wheel of my car that's a little bit flat, why don't I just remove it? <laughs> no, I mean, you have to live with that wheel and it's important for making your car move even if it doesn't necessarily, it makes your car, your car slowly keeps pulling to the right because of that wheel but you don't want to remove it. Um, you just have to offset the effect of that wheel by making sure you <laughs> lean to the left um, and making sure that when you're driving a car that has that problem, that, you, um, that you're aware of it and that you um, don't allow yourself to kind of get sloppy. And so I think the real issue isn't so much turning off the mesolimbic system. You don't want to turn it off. You want to make sure that the other systems are fully on. Um, you want to make sure that you make a decision when you're thinking about the chocolate cake with the full force. I mean, chocolate cake is trivial, so who cares? Um, but what about, you know, who you're going to marry or whether you're going to cut that guy off on the road in Los Angeles? Um, uh, <laughs> not enough Americans in the room. So, um, <laughs> so uh, you want to make sure that you don't rely on that Mesolympic system to make a decision for you when the stakes are high and when you should be bringing all of your analytic capacity to bear. And we know when you're burdened with working memory, when you're distracted, when you're doing four things at once, your analytic cortex may be somewhat out of commission and your mesolimbic dopamine system is fully functional. And that's the moment not to decide to you know, pass 17 cars on a curvy mountain road. In all your examples, you uh, introduced certainty. So you were definitely either going to get fruit salad or you were definitely either going to get chocolate cake as the choice. Does the
0: model retain its robustness when you introduce uncertainty so that there was a 50% chance of having the, the chocolate and an 80% chance of the fruit salad?
1: Yeah.
0: Does, does the model still hold?
1: You know, it, it certainly, you can write down the model in a way that makes uncertainty a kind of separable phenomenon. So it doesn't change anything that I said, it just provides an additional module. You could also write down the model that fundamentally links discounting to uncertainty and ties them fully at the hip and makes one incomprehensible without the other. We don't know which approach is right. So I should say this though, that there isn't a lot of evidence about the tied at the hip model. So until proven otherwise, I'm gonna proceed with the separable model and not worry about the interactions between the two. But it's an open question. And there are people like um, Howard Rafflin who believe that you can't understand one without the other. It's a minority view.
0: Um, I've got a question that may sound silly. I'm from a social psychology background, and I don't see how social interaction enters into your model. Um, that guy under the neuroimaging, how would you react if he had his mother looking at him, for example, at the answers he was giving? Would it be different? Would not, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah. So so I, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a... I've been a surprisingly high amount of my time reading social psychology. Uh, So I'm convinced that those phenomena are gonna be really important for economists in understanding the world. And I think the way social phenomena work is they provide, in many cases, all sorts of rich cues about how we should behave in different situations. Cues that probably often work through, in many cases, not the analytic brain, but more of these emotional systems. other people that are running that direction, I run too without even thinking, or my mother's there. and um, you know apparently Olivier Blanchard only observed me in the presence of my mother. <laughs> so that explains it. So um, uh, so so I do think that those effects are are, are all going to be relevant, and I think economists have underappreciated how those effects work. Um, I don't think it chain. I don't think you I think you can study one without the other because I don't think those kinds of social cues fundamentally, um, change the way we will understand this. I think they'll they'll affect it, um, but they don't um, they don't you, they don't need to be in the model to understand the basic mechanism. Hi, I'm just wondering, um was there any kind of monitor to see if there was a difference between uh, male and female brain activity? because I was thinking it's quite interesting to analyze that in terms yeah. of temptation, resistance, and that kind of thing. So so, so, so we don't find any differences in our samples, but our samples are very small. A typical neuroimaging study has about 20 subjects. So in our samples, no differences. Mm -hmm. Um, The differences show up in the study of attitudes towards risk. So that's where people find very large, or not large. The only differences that are robust in the literature are differences in attitudes towards risk with, as you might expect, women being... um, less tolerant of risk than men. Um, But in things like intertemporal choice, there do not appear to be robust differences that separate men from women, at least none none that have been discovered to
0: date. Um, I I may be a a little slow and not picked up the point, but as I lie on your magnet, the cost of which I've forgotten because I can't remember seven numbers. Um, is there any evidence in the scan of an internal dialogue between the two parts of the brain?
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's a brilliant question. That's what we're working on um, right now. And there's a, set, there's a set of research projects that are trying to answer that question. And um, I wish I could confidently tell you we're going to succeed i'm not i'm quite pessimistic actually <laughs> but but we think there is an internal dialogue and we think that the challenge is to decompose not just the preferences of these systems but the way those preferences are brought together debated resolved and then translated into an action and we think that's the most exciting set of questions in this literature but one that is very very hard to to get to because you're talking about kind of a second order thing not the initial impulse but the responses to the impulses Um, hard to measure, um, hard to model last question Uh, we've seen that we pay more attention to
0: the consequences in the long term in the future, for example we choose to discount Uh, now, but not a bigger discount in the future, how does it apply to economics? How does it apply in in planning investments, in policy, investment policies?
1: So that's that's the perfect question that will be answered when you come back (laughs) tomorrow. So I, I I will take some of, you know, I will show you how, you know, we saw an example of how someone who wants to exercise never gets around to it. Well, it turns out there are a lot of investment activities that look like exercise. Um, and we'll see in Tuesday's lecture that a lot of the apparently bizarre and paradoxical behaviors that I will show you can be understood as examples and instances of financial procrastination. Okay, thank you.
0: Well, well, well. well I think I think you said all that needs saying this was a fantastic lecture um, could, could you just sit down a second <laughs> I just want to say uh, on your behalf that I think this was a fantastic lecture not only the way David did it uh, but the substance of it is really extraordinarily important uh, and it shows uh, the way forward in social science and how we will make progress through the combination of the different social science disciplines. Uh, This was an extraordinarily rich illustration it reminds me that 11 years ago we had Daniel Kahneman here uh, who won the Nobel Prize for uh, economics for in in essence applying psychology to economics Uh, the the science then was at a very preliminary stage and it's amazing the progress that's been made uh, in the Uh, the last 11 years, and we'll be hearing more about it uh, tomorrow and the day after. Uh, Please come along uh, then, and uh, if you want to have a drink, uh, you're welcome on the fifth floor now. Thank you.